The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones, and the whole land, declares the Lord, Two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be kept alive. And I will put this third into the fire, and refine them as one refined silver, and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Will you pray with me? Father God, you are good. Your goodness is not bound up in our circumstances. It's not dependent upon our emotions. Father, in the middle of storms, in the middle of sorrow, in the middle of chaos, in the middle of depression, in the middle of loss, in the middle of sickness, even in the middle of our sin, God, you are good. You have proven your faithfulness time after time. So, Father, we gather together as a people just desperate to see more of that goodness, seeking to exalt your name, to glorify you in your very presence. Father, as we approach your word this morning, we pray that you would keep all the thoughts of the week, all the anxieties of tomorrow, all the sadness for the time that has been lost that you would keep all of that away and that we would see nothing other than your glory in the face of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, we're asking you to do what only you can do. We're asking you to change us, to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe what you have said. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you gather together with us Last Sunday morning, you'll recall that we studied the institution of the Lord's Supper. You remember that as Jesus reclined at table with his apostles and they observed there the very last of the true Passover meals, that in the middle of this, Jesus was transforming the meaning and the focus of the entire thing. No longer would God's people look back to the Exodus as the pinnacle of God's redeeming work. No longer would the people offer a sacrificial lamb for the forgiveness of sins because true salvation eternal forgiveness had come it had come in him from this night forward whenever the people took the bread and they took the cup they would look back to the cross of Jesus Christ they would look forward in anticipation to his coming they would recognize that in that moment any who came in true repentant faith they would meet with him there at that table that in a very real spiritual way they would feast upon him they would be strengthened for whatever comes next that for this moment for the people of Israel, all of true Israel, all of God's redeemed people, they were to recognize that eternal salvation, that all that Israel had longed for for all those years and all the promises of God, they'd come in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We will return to the table again this morning. God's will, God willing, we'll return again next week. It's my full expectation that with each meal, your hope, your joy, 
the strength of your faith will only grow. But I need to make one thing absolutely clear. The efficacy of what happens at this table, it is not bound up in your emotions. When I say that it is my hope and expectation that you will meet with Jesus Christ at his table, that your faith will be strengthened, that he will cause you to endure, the hope in that is not bound up in my ability to elicit some sort of emotional response in you. I have no idea what this is going to feel like. I have no idea what this does feel like for the true child of God. So as we approach these elements, seeking to glorify God, seeking to eat in his presence, I pray that I never give you the impression that if you don't feel some certain emotion in the moments to come, that you've somehow missed out. See, we live in a world, a society, even many within the church that are so addicted to emotions. They chase after emotions. I dare say they even worship emotions. And we can get caught into that trap of believing there's something we have to feel, some emotion we have to experience in this moment in order for this table to mean anything. And dear friends, we strive hard around this place for true religious affections. We desperately seek to chase away any fluff and any flippancy. We have rightly labored to strive for the appropriate tone for every single service we gather for. We've worked hard again to remove anything that might be counted, counted as light or flippant. We strive for sober-minded, enduring joy. The kind of unshakable joy that's not bound up in our emotions or our experiences or our circumstances. The kind of joy that can only be found in the truth of God's holy word. So I pray that you see this. Pray that you see that the power of what God does here at this table as he meets with his people, that it is not found in the emotions that come. I pray that you see that the efficacy of what happens here, it is not bound up in what you feel in these moments. Listen, I say to you, based on the authority of God's word, that if you will come to this table in childlike faith, he will meet with you and you will be strengthened. This promise is not based on what you feel. This is not based on your emotions. This isn't based on the way you grade this service at the end of the day. It's based on his faithfulness. So the question at hand is, do you believe this word? Do you trust that Jesus is who he says he is and that he's done what he says he has done? Have you studied the Holy Scriptures and there have you seen Jesus Christ as your only hope and your ultimate treasure? And you, have you examined yourself? Do you see fruit? Do you see evidence that you have truly trusted in Jesus Christ? Do you see evidence of ongoing spiritual life? Do you see evidence in your life today that you are believing in Jesus Christ? Do you see evidence in your life that you are repenting of your sins? Is the direction and the aim of your whole life in following after him? If the answer is yes, then come to this table and be fed. The answer is yes, don't worry about what your heart tells you. Because dear friends, your heart's a liar. Emotions lie. Emotions come and go. Emotions can be fleeting. Come here fully expecting that while your physical hands and your physical mouth, they receive this bread and this juice, that by faith you'll receive the body and Christ of Jesus Christ in an even more real yet spiritual way. Fully trusting that his promises will come to pass in your life. Some of you will cry over the sorrow of your sins. Some of you will be overcome with emotion at the joy that you received knowing that those sins have been forgiven. And some of you, you may feel nothing at all. 
at least not anything that can be tied to any sense of an emotional experience. But I pray that you see this. Jesus says, come in faith. Come truly trusting that I am who I said I am, that I will do what I said I will do. Trusting in his promises more than your own heart. And you come expectantly. Knowing that you don't get to this table and he doesn't say, no, I'm going to withhold all the goodness I have for your life because you don't feel the right thing. He doesn't require you to come to this table and pay for his gifts, pay for his good grace with your tears. That's not the way Jesus Christ works. He says, do you trust that I will do what I say I will do? Then come. Any who come in faith like this, I will strengthen you. I will cause you to persevere. I will cause you to endure. In fact, I would argue with you, church, that those moments, they can be a whole lot more difficult when not tied with emotions. When those emotions are stripped away, when you come in here so beaten down from the week that you can hardly muster the strength to get up out of your pew and walk here, there's no tears to be had. Your faith is holding on by a thread. You don't know if you're going to make it to next week's service. But the preacher man says, come, so I'm going to come. Dear friends, I tell you that the days when there is no emotions, those will be some of your sweetest suppers. So I encourage you this morning to come in faith just like that. Come and be fed by him. Come and watch as your faith grows. And the evidence of this faith, the evidence of this growth, it is not found in your feelings. It is found in the transformed life of enduring faith. You go to your grandmother's house and she has marked your height on a doorpost because you can't see it in real time. Dear friends, what happens at this supper today, you might not see the effects of it until you get punched in the mouth five years down the road. But I'm telling you based on the promises of God's word, he will meet you here. So we return this morning to our text. We're still in Mark's gospel, chapter 14. And as you'll recall, it is still Thursday night. It's just moments after the conclusion of this meal that will be the last of Jesus before his crucifixion. And it's just about midnight. It's been a night full of just tremendous instruction as all of what we read in John's gospel from chapter 13 all the way through 17 as Jesus encourages his men to carry on and to endure. He warns them about the trials and the suffering that lay ahead. He tells them that their only hope is to abide in him and in his word. He offers up the high priestly prayer. Just some of the most beautiful and powerful words in all the gospels are found there. And then we come to this, this morning's text. So I ask you to stand to your feet, please. Reverence the reading of God's word. We return to Mark's gospel, chapter 14, beginning in verse 26. This is the word of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I rise up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even if they all fall away, I will not. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Father God, yet again, we confess our dependence upon you. We ask you to take these words and make them live to us, that we would truly see you, truly see ourselves, and truly see our Savior. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Verse 26, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now you'll recall that on every other night, 
Jesus left the city and he headed east. Before the gates were closed, he would leave Jerusalem, lest he be arrested before the appointed time. He would go over the Mount of Olives. He would go into a town called Bethany. There he would sleep in the home of his dear friends, Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But Passover required that that meal be observed within the city limits. So this night, Jesus didn't leave the city. In fact, we see him and the other disciples coming into the city. That it would be there that they would observe the Passover in the upper room of the home of a man that perhaps seems to have maybe been a disciple himself. Now at this point, the, disciple, the, the supper excuse me, is concluded. And the men once again are leaving the city. The scripture tells us that they were singing a hymn as they go. We don't know, was this perhaps the concluding portion of the Hillel? Were they singing Psalm 118 or some other song of praise to God? We don't know. But what we do know is that Jesus and his disciples, they won't travel the full two miles over the mountain and into Bethany. They're going to stop. They're in a garden there on, on the Mount of Olives. A Mount of Olives, that's where they're going to stop and spend whatever remains of this night. Verse 27. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. You see, when Jesus told the 12 that one of them was going to betray them, they were all struck with great distress. You see, they knew, Jesus has been telling them over and over again, they knew that when they got to Jerusalem, that Jesus was going to be handed over to the officials and that they would call for his life. Yet they never dreamed that it would be one of them that would do the betraying. It would be one of them that would deliver him over to this fate. So one by one, as we moved around the table there at that last supper, they would ask, Lord, is it me? But now as they headed through the Kidron Valley and up the other side of the Mount of Olives, the betrayer was gone. You remember that Jesus took a morsel of bread and he, he dipped it in his bowl and then he handed it to the betrayer. He handed it to Judas and he said, what you're going to do, do it quickly. And Judas went out into the darkness of night and he hurried to go and meet with the Sanhedrin. He now knew where Jesus was going to be in the moments to come and he needed to report to them that he could then carry them to the, to the garden. They could capture and arrest Jesus there away from the prying eyes of the daytime crowds. But now, Jesus is not just talking about one of the 12. He's not just talking about one of the remaining 11. He says that all of them will fall away. Scandalizo is the word in Greek. Do you remember that word? We've encountered it quite a bit as we've worked through Mark's, Mark's gospel. Scandalon. It's where we get our word scandal from. We saw it back in the ninth chapter of Mark's gospel as Jesus warned his men that we must take great care not to cause a little child to stumble, a little one, one who is small in their faith. We must take great care that we won't cause them to stumble, to fall, to trip into sin. He goes on a little bit later in that very same chapter to say that if our hand causes us to, to, to stumble, if our hand causes us to fall, that we would be better off to chop it off. You see, we'd be better off entering into the kingdom of heaven minus an arm than to go into the pits of hell completely whole so we see this word there it's a cause for stumbling it's a cause for sin we saw it again in the sixth chapter of mark's gospel as jesus was there in his hometown he was there in nazareth and nazareth and the people they were just amazed by him isn't this the son of mary isn't this the carpenter isn't the brother of james and joseph and judas who is this man that would preach with this kind of authority who is this man that could heal with such power and the scripture says that he was a scandal to them Escandalizo is the word there. It, 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 it means that, that they took offense at him. He was a stumbling block. He got in their way that they tripped over him. These men who had known him for the first 30 years of his earthly life. But perhaps the most telling use of this word, scandalon, the one that should have been most concerning to these men on this night, it comes in the fourth chapter of Mark's gospel. The Lord has issued his parable of the soils. You remember that. And then as he's giving his explanation, the meaning behind all that he's taught, we read this. Mark 4, verse 16. 
And these are the ones sown on rocky soil, the ones who, when they heard the word, immediately received it with joy. Verse 17, and they have no root in themselves, but they endure for a while. But then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. The seed that is soiled on the rocky soil, the shallow soil, this soil that, that, that has no depth to it. Because of this, they will immediately sprout up and there will be evidence of faith. There will be evidence of spiritual life. They will look just like soil that's going to take, that's going to produce a fruitful tree. And yet in the end, because they are so shallow, because their faith is not real, they will burn up. When persecution, when trials, when suffering comes, they will scatter. Their faith will prove to have never been real because it did not endure to the end. Their faith was not sincere. It was not grounded in truth. It would not endure. It would not carry them forward. And in the end, they would be lost. Is this what Jesus was saying about his disciples? Was this the picture that he was painting of them just hours before his crucifixion? Was he telling these men, these men that had been called and set aside, these men that had been participants in the working of Jesus Christ, not only in sharing of the gospel, but in casting out demons and even healing men, was Jesus saying that every single one of them would be lost in the end? What he had said of this man named Judas was, it would have been better if he had never been born. You see, whatever good things came in this life, whatever treasures he accumulated for them, himself, they would be not nearly enough to offset the horrors of eternal hell that waited him. Did the same fate wait the other 11? Was their faith truly just shallow and superficial and lifeless? Is that what Jesus is saying here? When he says that they will all fall away, is he saying that they are all truly damned? And what in the world could cause these men to fall away like this? What in the world could cause these men that had seen so much of Jesus' power and authority and goodness for three years, what could cause them to stumble and fall away? Verse 27, he says to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus is quoting the prophet Zechariah here. Zechariah 13, that's the text that David read a little bit earlier. Now you'll remember that it's the ninth chapter of that prophecy where we read about the triumphal entry. These are the words that we point back to as Jesus rode in on the colt of a donkey. This pointed back to the promises of Messiah riding in on a colt of a donkey, exactly as he had done. He was fulfilling that prophecy in real time as he rode into Jerusalem on this final time. But it's there a little bit later as we find the prophet being used of God to speak to the people of promise that there will come a time of ultimate cleansing. There will come a time when sin and idolatry will be wiped away once and for all. And then we read this, Zechariah 13, 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. This is God speaking. He's saying that he will strike the shepherd. It is his sword which comes down upon the shepherd of his people. We're reminded yet again that while Satan and Judas and the Jewish leaders and Pilate and Herod and the Greek soldiers all acted according to their will. It was their sincere desire to demand and take the life of Jesus Christ. This was their sin and only they will answer for it. But at the same time, we're reminded that all of this happens exactly as the hand and plan of God had predestined to take place. We can point back to the words of Isaiah 53.10 where we read that it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. That it is he who has put him to grief. That the great shepherd, the great shepherd of God's people, Jesus Christ our Lord, he would die at the hand of his father. 
not as some kind of cosmic child abuse, but as the ultimate, the ultimate and greatest act of inner Trinitarian love this world has ever seen. God glorifying himself and purchasing a people for his son by the blood of his son. God of the universe glorifying himself by both punishing sin and saving sinners. No more beautiful and righteous act in the history of the world than this. And yet when that first blow is struck, when they come and strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. You can see the picture. You remember that back in Matthew chapter 9, we touched on this in a cross reference, but you'll remember that Jesus looked upon the people of Israel because their leaders had so failed them because our leaders were not truly seeking after God and were not holding fast to his word and all that he had revealed there, that Jesus looked upon the people with compassion because they appeared to him as sheep without a shepherd. That Jesus had come as the true shepherd to truly leave, lead and lay down his life for the sake of the sheep. That's what shepherds do. The sheep don't protect the shepherd. The shepherd hurts so the sheep don't have to. And yet, as we can imagine, when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will scatter. Now, we will see Peter on the moment when Jesus is arrested, when the mobs come with the clubs and the swords and they, they come, into the, come into the garden to arrest Jesus. We will see Peter bow up. He will take out his sword and he will swing it. And yet, once he realizes that it's not by physical might, it's not by the tip of the sword that the kingdom of God comes, he'll realize he's terrified and he will flee just like all the rest. It's in that moment when they realize that Jesus will indeed be taken away to die. They realize what that means for themselves. We read in Mark 14, 50, that they all left him and fled. They would run like cowards on the night when their Savior was arrested. Now, realizing the horror of what he had done, Judas would take his own life. When Judas came to the point that he recognized exactly what he had done, that he had truly betrayed an innocent man for 30 pieces of silver, Judas would so despair of what he had done and who he had become that he would hang himself. And so it's absolutely critical that the remaining 11 hear what Jesus says to them next. Lest they believe that failing Christ at this critical moment, lest they believe that running away as he went to the cross to die for their sins, they ran away like cowards. Lest they believe that this was the unpardonable sin, lest they despair of all hope, lest they believe that this separated them from him once and for all and they themselves were damned like Judas, they had to hear these words. Verse 28, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now the promise that Jesus was gonna raise from the dead, this was not new to them. They had heard this time after time after time. He says, I will be killed, but three days later I will rise again. It is the second half of that sentence which is critical. It's what happens after the resurrection of Jesus Christ that these men had to hear on this night. I submit to you, there's some of you this morning that have to hear these words. These are the words that you need to endure today. These are the words that you need for encouragement today. It's what will happen next. Because what Jesus is saying to his disciples, what he's saying to these other 11, he says, I know who you are. I knew who you were when I called you and you will all fall away. I've seen your heart from the very beginning. I knew that Judas was the betrayer. I knew that Judas was the devil, and I knew that you were a coward. I knew that you would run as soon as I was struck. I go to the cross knowing that you have fled from me. I go to the cross knowing that you would not even uphold my name and stay with me in this, the darkest hour, because you are so weak, because your faith is so little, because you are such cowards, and yet still I go. Still I go to the cross to die for your sins. I called you to come to me. I called you to be used in my kingdom. I called you to preach my gospel. I called you to be my 11 that are set apart and I knew exactly who you were. Do not think for one second that Jesus Christ doesn't know who you are. 
Do not think for one second that Jesus Christ has called you to himself and then he got six months in and went, I need a refund. I didn't know this guy was this messed up. He said, I knew who you were at all times. But listen to what he says. In light of all of this, but after I rise up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now these men, they'd all been called from Galilee, maybe with the exception of Judas. And what you'll find throughout Mark's gospel and the other gospels is that Judea is a place of opposition and and persecution and darkness while Galilee is a place of of hope there would have been good memories there magnificent memories in this instance it's going to be a place of restoration this is a place where Jesus had called his disciples from and he's saying I will go before you and there I will meet you again after you rise I will meet you back in that place of hope I will meet you back in that place where you remember that I first called you this is the same message that the women would receive when they go to the empty tomb as they go to anoint Jesus' body and they meet the angel there, he says to them in Mark 16, beginning in verse six, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who is crucified for he is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Even in this moment, even after the betrayal, after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, he says, go back to Galilee and I will meet you there. Run ahead, because I've gone before you. I'm going to lead you yet again when you meet me there, despite your falling away, despite your fear that left you to flee from me, despite your show of absolute cowardice and lack of faith, he's promising that he will come to them yet again. On that day, as they come to him, as, the, as he comes to them, as he, as he meets with them, they will see the holes in his hand. They will see the hole in his side. This is the price of sin. They'll be reminded of the cost of sin, not just generic sin, their sin. On that day, they will be reminded that there's not a one of them that has lived a sinless life, that there's not a one of them that has earned their own way into the kingdom of God, that they too are wholly dependent upon the scars that this man now holds for their access to eternal life, that he's going to greet them just like this. Not a one of them can claim, I have earned my spot at this table. And yet, even as they looked at these wounds by which they are healed, he would greet them as brothers and friends. Peace to you. Isn't that what he says? Peace to you. He doesn't scold them. He doesn't reprimand them. He doesn't demand recompense. He doesn't cast them away. He encourages them. He greets them. He embraces them. He reassures them of their relationship with him. He strengthens them for all the persecution and the trials and the sorrows that lie ahead. He gives them everything that they will need to endure to the end. Christian, don't you see this? These men would run away from Jesus Christ, but all was not lost. This would not be the final act in their walk with Jesus Christ. They wouldn't be separated from him forever. They would recognize on this day that Jesus hadn't called them, called them to himself because of their strength. Jesus hadn't called them because of their obedience. They fell away exactly as he said they would. But this would not be the end of their story. They would not be destroyed. They would not be cast into utter darkness like Judas. They would be forgiven and welcomed into the kingdom of God. Used of him to do truly glorious works. Now, this promise should have driven these men to absolute humility. This should have driven these men to utter worship, to recognize that they were no better than the betrayer. They couldn't turn their nose up at Judas. They couldn't shake their head at Judas' betrayal because they too would abandon Jesus Christ. They too would run away in that last hour. But instead of falling down in worship, Instead of feeling that sense of humility, we read that Peter says this, verse 29, even though they all fall away, I will not. Classic Peter. 
self-assured haughtiness. Jesus, even if all these other men fall away, and frankly, Jesus, between you and me, I can see them doing it. They're cowards. But even if all of them fall away, Lord, I assure you that I will not. Within a matter of hours, Peter had gone from, Lord, is it I? To, Lord, I don't care what you say. It won't be me. Dear friends, it struck me this week as I read these words that Jesus has just told Peter and all the rest that they will run away when things get tough, but that in an act of just unmerited mercy and goodness and grace, he will not forsake them, that he will come and strengthen them. This is, shows a, just an absolute beautiful picture of just this, this, this brilliant, radiant diamond of, of God's glory, of God's goodness, the mercy of Jesus Christ against the backdrop of the sins of his people. But rather than acknowledging that Jesus knows his own heart better than he knows himself, rather than falling down on his face in worship, or perhaps even just crying out, if Peter would have just cried out in that moment, Lord, I don't want to abandon you. I don't want to forsake you. I believe you that you know me better than I know myself. And I believe you that maybe this is gonna get a whole lot tougher than I believe. And I don't wanna do that. I love you. And I sincerely mean in this moment, I don't see any chance that I'm going to forsake you, but I trust you more than I trust myself. Would you help me? Would you strengthen me? Would you cause me not to fall away like this? Instead, what does he do? He seeks to fortify the flesh. He seeks to buckle down. That same flesh that's going to fail him on that night, he says, no, 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 no. I'm just going to hold it up. I'm just going to strengthen it. I'm going to make sure even if everyone else falls away on this night, I will not. Dear friends, I hate how much of myself I see in this picture. Listen, we are called to abhor sin, to fight sin, to resist sin. Of course, we don't sin so that grace can abound all the more. We hate sin. We work out our salvation with fear and with trembling, falling on our face and spotting sin everywhere we can and and using the sword of God's word, chasing it out of our lives. But dear friends, I hate how many times I look backwards on my life and I find that I've showed an absolute, utter contempt for the grace of God. Number one, because of my sinful confidence in my own flesh. Because I devote myself to seeking to glorify myself. Self-exalting self-righteousness rules the day. I will just bow my neck, I will bear down, and I will fight this sin in my own power. Instead of falling on my face in Christ-exalting, humiliating dependence upon him. Don't you see? I don't want a savior. I want someone to empower me to save myself. I want to be the hero of this story. I want to be the one that overcomes my own sin. I can't bear the thought of the God of the universe truly glorifying himself through my weakness. Peter says, I won't go through that trial. I won't go through that path that everyone else is going to go through. I'm just going to try harder. I'm going to buckle down. Surely I can build up my own flesh in such a way that I'm not going to have to go through this humiliating path with all the rest. Dear friends, how many times have I shown that in my life? How many times do I have to look backwards and realize that I have to repent even of the reason behind my good works? That I have to repent even from the way that I flee from sin because I don't do it to the glory of God. I don't do it to magnify his name. I do it so that I can be the conqueror of my own sin. Instead of crying out, Father God, please help me. 
Help me that the name of Jesus Christ might be glorified in my life. If you will use my weakness, if you will use my sin, if you will use my failures, if you will use my humiliation to the glory of God, I trust that that's truly to my greatest good. Do you know why I try to drill down on this so much? Because we work at cross purposes. The Bible makes clear that the glory of God and the goodness in our life, they go hand in hand. And yet so often I find myself chasing after goodness in my own name, goodness in my own flesh, goodness in self-exaltation, instead of coming to the only place where I find true and lasting goodness, real joy in the glory of God. Instead of crying out to God like I shouldn't say, God, humble me if that's what it takes. I will tell you that that's a prayer I pray on every Sunday morning. As I kneel in my study, I say, God, if you must humiliate me, humiliate me. It's a prayer I say with a trembling voice because I try to mean it more than I think I do. But I at least say the words. and say, God, help me to want this. Help me to truly want it. If I'm going to step on that stage today, if I'm going to stand behind that pulpit today, and I'm going to lay an absolute egg, I'm going to look like a fool. You people are going to wonder what I've done with my week. You people are going to wonder if I've even read the Bible. But it glorifies you. Praise be to you. I know that it's to my good. I know that the people will be blessed. But I find my heart a whole lot more like Peter. But dear friends, the reality is God will humble you. God is not a negligent father. He will do right by you. And if it takes pulling down your pants and spanking you in front of the congregation, he will do it. And we see that with Peter right here, verse 30. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. This is an act of love, dear friends. An act of love. He's going to expose Peter's cowardly sin. This is an act of goodness and mercy to bring Peter to see how desperate he is for true saving faith. How desperate he is for the the grace of Jesus Christ in his life. Peter, not only will you fall away, you will deny me. The word there is arnameo. It it means to disown or to renounce. Peter would would swear a curse upon himself saying, I never even knew you. I never even heard of this man. I'm completely disassociated with this man. I never even heard of him. And as a result, he would leave broken and weeping. Perhaps the first crow should have been his signal. Perhaps when the the first crow of the rooster came, he should have recognized, okay, this is what Jesus had warned me about. I must be on guard. I must turn back. At that point, he'd only denied him one time, but he wouldn't. He couldn't. Two more times, he would deny Jesus Christ because his fear was too strong. And that's the issue. Peter's, Peter's fear of the world was stronger than his love for Christ at that moment. Dear friends, how many men have been undone, not by lust, not by greed, not by violence, but by fear, by absolute cowardice? Verse 31, but he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. At least Peter and the others recognized what was at stake here. Refusal to deny Jesus meant certain death. To follow Jesus means to take up your cross, to say goodbye to this life. And in certain parts of this world, and I believe at some point in this country, it will mean literally to lose your life, your physical life. And if you read this text this morning and you simply can't relate at all, you hear this and you you just, you cannot relate to Peter's denial driven by fear. Might I suggest that perhaps you've made friends with the world or you don't know the gospel. Because the true gospel of Jesus Christ is not a thing that will be received by the world. To truly look a man in the eye and tell him, your sin is so deep and so dark and so wretched. 
and it has so entangled itself with your life that it requires the death of God's Son to set you free. The world won't receive a thing like that. To preach the true gospel. Any man has ever sought to preach this true gospel. Any man has ever gone out in this world and sought to live out this true gospel. You know that fear. Anyone that tells you there's no problem. I have no problem going out and reciting Bible verses. Dear friends, the world will receive some Bible verses. The world will receive some well wishes about Jesus Christ. The world will receive that there's promises that God has for you in your life. The world won't receive their own depravity. They won't receive that they are not the hero of their story. And what I find in my own life is more often than not, it's not an outright denial of Jesus Christ. I've never denied the name of Jesus Christ. I've never told someone that I didn't know him. It's the times I kept my mouth shut when I should have said something. And I'll be real honest with you. More often than not, it happens inside the church. I'll look at the man on the street and tell him how desperately he needs salvation. I have a hard time looking at a church member and telling him they need to be saved. But despite all the warnings, despite their awareness of the cost that was yet to come, these men swore allegiance and were minded yet again. It's real easy to swear allegiance to Jesus Christ in a safe place like this. It's real easy to swear allegiance to Jesus Christ when the swords and the billy clubs haven't yet come out. But in the end, before it was all said and done, when trouble comes, they would run like cowards. Now before we move to the table, I, I, wanna, I wanna direct your attention to Luke's gospel. You, you might wanna flip there, Luke 22. Because what I, what I think we find, and I'm not 100% about this, but what I think we find is that this is actually the second time on this night when Jesus has warned Peter about his betrayal. If you look in John's gospel and you look in Luke's gospel, they both record a time when Jesus looks at Peter and tells him, you'll betray me. Now, in Luke and John, those both happened while they were still at the supper. Now, there's a chance, there's a case. I've told you that the Gospels are not always in chronological order. There's a chance that they did this for theological purposes that I just don't see. But I think that there's a chance that perhaps this is actually the second time that Jesus has told Peter this is going to happen. What we find in John's Gospel, John chapter 13, is that Peter again is swearing allegiance to Jesus, again saying he'll go to, he'll, he'll go to the cross, he'll die with Jesus if that's what it takes. And Jesus tells him, no, you won't. You'll, you'll deny me three times before the sun comes up. Then we find here in Luke chapter 22 that the men have just finished arguing about which one of them is the greatest. Jesus, he's correcting them, and I'm sure Peter was amongst the loudest, talking about which one of him is the greatest. But then I, I believe that what we have here is some insight. We, we kind of get a, a picture behind, behind the scenes, spiritually what's going on in the life of Peter when we see him fall like this. So go to verse 31. Luke 22, verse 31. These are familiar words to you, I'm sure. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, by the way, he changed the dude's name to Peter. They often refer to him as Simon as a reminder of his weakness and how often he runs back to that flesh and that old self. But he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now we find the enemy again. We find Satan again right in the middle of all of this. And we've seen him there, right? He attempted Judas to betray Jesus. When Judas took the morsel, it says that Satan actually entered in to him. You remember that when Jesus talked about his going to the cross, that Peter told him, no, you won't do this. He tried to get in the way of Jesus going to the cross. And what did Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. Satan had been all over this story. Satan had been at work all over the story. And, and it reminds us here, though, is, is he says he, he's demanded to have you. It reminds me of a man called Job. 
Reminds me of how Satan went to God and said, I'm going to afflict this man. I'm going to separate this man from you through affliction. And God allowed it. God allowed it that he might be glorified. God allowed it that he might work in the life of Job. God allowed it that he might cause this man to endure. God allowed it so that in the life of this man called Job, we could see a literal picture of what it looks like to count all the things of this world as rubbish for the sake of knowing God, for the sake of being called a friend of God. This man that would show what it means to truly worship and adore the God of the universe even when all his good gifts have been stripped away. But here what we read is that Satan wants to sift Peter, the leader of the apostles, this man who would be absolutely fundamental in the early work of the church. Satan asks this request and we're reminded yet again that Satan does nothing. Even the devil, even the prince of the demons does nothing unless God wills it. Now demand here, this word for demand, the Greek word for demand, it has a stronger sense in the English, but clearly he would have had to ask permission. This is an ask, this is a request of God because he can do nothing apart from the will of God. Satan, just like all the rest of creation, must answer to God. His sovereignty is not escaped. His sovereign hand does not come off of even the demons. Nothing happens unless he decrees it. So Satan wants to sift Peter. And we know what sifting is. It's when you take the wheat, they would have put it in a winnowing fork. Every preacher uses this illustration, right? None of us knew anything about winnowing until we became preachers. And now we all become experts. And I don't know anything about sifting anything. That's a lie. I mean, I know the little sifter at the house, I guess, right? With flour, you pull the trigger and it sifts through. No? Okay, we have one. I've never done it, but. Also, we become experts in how we sift wheat, right? But apparently what they did was they would take a, take a winnowing fork. I'm picturing the thing like you clean stalls with, frankly. And you would put wheat on it, and you would kind of shake it and throw it in the air. And what happens is there's a separation there in the shaft, which is good for nothing but being thrown on the fire. It's worthless. It's light. You throw it up in the air. The wind comes and carries it away, and you're left just with the grain, just with the stuff you actually want to eat. What Satan is asking to do here is to separate Peter from anything that is good. Specifically, he's asking to separate him. He's demanding that he has this opportunity to sift him and seek to separate him from saving faith. See, because Satan knows that he can't overthrow Jesus Christ. He knows that he cannot overthrow the kingdom of God. And so what he's going to do is he's going to seek to defame him by taking one who once followed after him, one who would experience the power and the goodness of the kingdom of God and completely separate him from that faith and show to the world, look, he's not that great. He's not worth following to the end. He can't even hold on to those that he calls his own. Look how weak this Jesus Christ must be. So he seeks to destroy them. He seeks to trap them. He seeks to ensnare them and lead them into utter, utter darkness. Now we look at later on in Peter's life, on the back end of this, after he's been filled to the Holy Spirit and strengthened and continued to be used, he looks backwards and he warns us, he warns others. 1 Peter 5, 8, he says, be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Peter knew firsthand. So Satan wants to sift Peter. He wants to separate him from Christ. He wants to separate him from his faith in the Lord. He wants to devour this man who once walked with Jesus just as he lured away and devoured Judas. But look at what Jesus promises. This is what I want you to focus on as we come to the table this morning. Look at the promise of Jesus Christ. Verse 32. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Do you see this church? Do you want to know why Peter persevered? Do you want to know why Peter carried on to the end while Judas found no place for repentance and found himself in utter and eternal darkness? It is ultimately this. Christian, Jesus prayed for Peter. He is praying for you even now. 
interceding on your behalf. Even now as he sits at the Father's right hand, there's a couple of things that are happening. As the devil brings accusation against you and you have nothing to offer, you have no defense, you have no excuse, you have nothing to give in payment, he is right there. Jesus Christ is your advocate. Jesus Christ the righteous, stepping in, interceding on your behalf, not just as an advocate, but as a, one who prays on your behalf, interceding, making an appeal on your behalf. Listen to the glorious promise of Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. Circle uttermost in your Bible. Go to Hebrews 7.25 right now and circle the word uttermost. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Save to the uttermost because you are his. And when you are his, he will not let go. Those who have drawn near to God through him, he will save you completely. That's what uttermost means, completely. He doesn't save you halfway. He doesn't save you 99% and then waits on you to do the one. He saves you to the uttermost. Uttermost also means at all times. So at all times, he is saving you completely. He is moving you towards that ultimate glorification that is promised at the end of the Christian life. That's the promise that he makes here. You're saved completely at all times. He never loses sight of you. He never lets you slip between his fingers. That at all times, he saves to the uttermost. That we can count on the words of, John, of Jesus in John 10, 27 to 28. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Not the devil, not your sin, not a thing. No one will snatch you from the hands of Jesus Christ. Dear friends, you must understand this. As you draw near to God through his son, Jesus Christ, you have an intercessor. You have one that is holding fast to you, one that is praying on your behalf, one that is advocating for you, one that is at work at all times to ensure that you carry on to the end because Jesus Christ doesn't lose. That's the promise that he makes here. So as we prepare to come to this table, as you prepare to come and draw near to Christ and be fed, I, I plead with you today, don't shy away in your sin. Don't shrink back in your sorrow. Don't hesitate in your shame. Trust in the promises of Jesus Christ and his goodness, his faithfulness, his power, his enduring hand that he will strengthen you here that you may carry on to the end. Trusting that he intercedes and it's not based in your power. It's not based in your emotions. It's not based in your faithfulness. It's based in his. He's interceding right now that he has not let go, that he will not let go. I know for many of you this probably feels like a time of sifting. For many of you, it feels like you've just gone through the sieve. And maybe it's not your sin. Maybe it's just another trial. Look, Job didn't sin against God. But buddy, there was a violent shaking in his life. For some of you, that's exactly where you are. And you feel like your faith is holding on by a thread. But he promises that if you will meet him here, he will use this to cause you to persevere, to endure, to be strengthened, to press on for whatever comes next. He guarantees that you will not be destroyed. You're truly his. You've come in repentant faith towards him. If you seek his glory rather than your own, you won't be a Judas. No matter what this week look like, no matter what this year look like, no matter what this decade look like, he says, I won't let go because you're mine. You're precious to me and I bought you at too high a price to let you go now. I purchased you with my own blood. I'm not gonna let you leave. That's exactly what he promised Peter. Finishing up that passage in Luke 22, verse 32, he says, and when you have turned, when, it's never in doubt, he doesn't say, if you turn, Peter, if you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, if you see fit to meet me in Galilee, he says, when you have turned, strengthen your brothers. Peter will turn. 
He will turn from his sin. He will turn from his shame. He will turn from his pride. He will turn to Jesus Christ. And as a result of this, as a result of this great humiliation, he will be used in magnificent ways in the kingdom of God. Dear friends, I assure you, as badly as Peter hates his sin, as badly as Peter regrets his sin, he would not trade that night for a million dollars. Don't despise the discipline of God. He will use your worst day to his glory and your good. You will be able to cry out like Job, a man who had been through the sifting. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. He will take your sin, he will take your failure, he will take your trials, he will take your suffering, he will take your weakness, he will take your cowardice, he will take every last moment of this life that you counted as your worst day and he will use that to show you himself in ways you would have never seen. You will count that as your most precious day. So I invite you to come to this table now. Come to this table now trusting that he will meet you here. Come to this table now putting to bed, putting to death whatever self-sufficient lie you have bought into up to this moment. Come to this table, meet with him, and you will be strengthened. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for this table and all that it represents. We thank you for the life, the death, the resurrection of your son Jesus Christ our Lord. We thank you for this opportunity to commemorate that, to look backwards to the cross, to truly savor that memory in these moments. But we thank you for the promise that he's coming back, Father. We thank you for this opportunity to proclaim that death, knowing that he's coming back for his bride. And Father, we thank you for the promise that for those that come in true, repentant faith, that that faith will be strengthened right here in these moments. It doesn't matter what we feel. It doesn't matter what we think we experience. If we trust in your promises, Father, We trust in your goodness. We can rest assured that you have done what you will do. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.